Numbers 13 and 14 are a watershed moment in the history of Israel. The wilderness wanderings lasted 40 years. Why do they last 40 years? It's, we are, this is revealed to us in these chapters. And uh, we will see the lack of faith that characterizes the people at this moment of crisis and unfortunately through much of their history. But in Numbers 13, in verses 1 through 3, the Lord commands to send spies and explore the land. Then in 13, 4 through 16, we're going to find the names of those men. And there was one from each tribe. Of course, not from the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi uh, is not involved in that. And then in verses 17 through 20, the instructions that were given to them. Verses 21 through 24, they explore the land, they carry out those instructions, and then they will bring back the report in verses 25 through 33. Now, in verses 1 through 3, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourselves men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of of the sons of Israel. So the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, and then in verse 3, they do this at the command of the Lord. Now, let me tell you a passage that we're going to refer to quite frequently today, and you may want to keep a marker in this place, and that's Deuteronomy 1. Deuteronomy 1. Now, interestingly... Deuteronomy 1 has a little different emphasis. In Deuteronomy 1, in verse 22, Moses is preaching a sermon to Israel shortly before they enter the land. Deuteronomy 1, 22. Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and may bring back to us word of the way by which we should go and the cities which we should enter. This passage, Deuteronomy 1.22, speaks of the initiative for searching out the land coming from the people. Now, obviously, both of these are true somehow. Is it true that the people first come? It seems to me that it's probable the people first come to Moses and make this request. 
And then the Lord issues this word in Numbers 13, verses 1 through 3. That seems to me to be the more logical sequence of events. God's purpose in it would no doubt have been in order to strengthen their faith. That was God's purpose. But we will see it doesn't achieve that particular purpose. But we will invoke Deuteronomy chapter 1 quite frequently today. Now, I want you to notice in verse 2 of Numbers 13, Send out for yourself men so they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. How is the land described? The land is described there in chapter 13 and verse 2 in terms of the land which I am giving. Attention is called, God is calling attention to His promises. God is calling attention to His words. The land which I am giving you. That will be very significant as we explore the text further. But one man from each tribe, from the wilderness of Paran, at the command of the Lord. Now the people presently in 13.3 are in the wilderness of Paran. Verse 26 will describe their location at Kadesh. These are not meant to be contradictory. These are meant to be complementary. But they are at Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea. In Deuteronomy 1 verse 2... Deuteronomy 1 verse 2, the Bible says it was 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now, I know it's taken them longer than that. They, they, they were at Mount Sinai as the Lord spoke to them for almost a year. Then they pick up and go at some point along the way. They have to wait seven days till Miriam is pronounced clean and able to re-enter the camp. But my point in this is that there's no reason for this journey to last 40 years. The reason it's going to last 40 years, as we stated earlier, is because of the unbelief that's going to be shown in this particular chapter. Okay, in verses 13, in chapter 13, verses 4 through 16, we have the names of those who spied out the tribes. Um, Tyler, give me offhand, top of your head, the ten unfaithful spies. <laughs> can you do that? <laughs> I bet everybody can give the two faithful spies. I, I remember hearing a sermon once, almost 40 years ago, where a person had written the names of the unfaithful spies on the board. And he says, probably if I ask you, you would say these names are not even in the Bible. But he said, they're in the Bible. And he turned over there and read it. And he says, but if I had written... No, no, he didn't first read it. He said, let me write two more names with it and see if you can pick up. Then he wrote Joshua and Caleb. And people perceived what he was saying. 
It's kind of like the book of Proverbs particularly stresses. The memory of the wicked is forgotten. The name of the righteous lives on. We don't remember the names of these unfaithful spies. Now, earlier we we talked about when the term El ends a name, it is a reference to God. Somehow is a reference to Him. You see names ending in El in verse 10, Gadil. Uh, then in verse 12, um, Ammiel. Uh, and then in verse 15, uh, Geuel. Um, so all those names end in God. Sometimes this is true, even in cases where you can't see it. For example, look in verse 9 at this name, Palti. Palti. Now, I particularly wanted to look this up because Sarah asked about this. Uh, but this may be a shortened form of the name Paltiel. Paltiel. Um, because that name appears uh, elsewhere in 2 Samuel 3, uh, verse 15. 2 Samuel 3, verse 15. Not the same person, but that name appears elsewhere. And that name carries with it the... This has the form L. And this particular root has the idea of to redeem or to deliver. And so his name has the idea of God redeems or God delivers. Now, one of the reasons I'm just writing that is just because Sarah asked about that. But also I think what it does is it shows us even more how inexcusable the unbelief of these people is. Their own names called attention to what God can do. Everything about their existence was tied to what their God can do. And now they're going to forget it at the moment of crisis. They're going to forget that. Now, these are the instructions in verses 17 through 20. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev. The Negev, it may have Negev in some of your versions. It may have the dry country or arid country. But then then go up into the hill country. Verse 18. See what the land is like. Whether the people who live in it are strong or weak. Whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? 
Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort, make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was, now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. Okay. What are the questions the spies are sent with? Are the people who live in the land strong or weak? Are they strong or weak? But most of the questions are about the land itself, aren't they? What the land is like. Uh, in verse 19, how is the land? Is it good or bad? In verse 20, is the land fat or lean? So a lot of it is about the land, but they're also to ask or they're also to discover about the people in the land or find out about the people in the land and to find out about the fortifications. Are they living in open encampments or do they have city walls? What, what's the case? Here. And they're, they're given this instruction. You search out the land and this is what I want you to look for. They will touch upon these basic issues when they bring their report in verses 25 through 33. They're going to touch upon that. Now, right down to the first 20 verses, do you have a question? Is... Um... <clears throat> It, it just seems interesting that if if what Moses is saying to them as far as like specific instructions is from God, it's why does it matter? Why does it matter what if the people are big or small or? In a certain sense, it doesn't. Is plentiful because God said it would be. Yes. Um, so I just wonder if that was a Moses instruction or if that was a God instruction. It's a good question. Um, of course. The fact, and I thought about this. Remember we talked about Hobab. The fact that God was guiding them and leading them along the way with the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, did not eliminate the fact there was an importance for him to serve as a guide for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are, I, I think, I understand your questions in a sense it doesn't make any difference. Because God has promised to give them the land. But are they going to view all of this through the eyes of faith? Or are they going to look at it through the eyes of unbelief? One of the things I try to talk about, I'm going to try to talk about the sermon this morning. You know, in Matthew 6 verse 8, Jesus told us not to pray like the Gentiles who make long prayers thinking that they will be heard because of their many words, for God knows your needs before you ask them. God already knows. Why does He even ask us to pray? It's kind of the same question in the way you're asking. But God is doing this, I think, to build their faith where they can see, in spite of all the obstacles, God can still give them the land. Is that going to be how it works out? No. But there may be a lot of difference sometimes between God's intent and between our execution of that intent. And um, it was in this case. Go ahead. Uh, verse 16, is there is there a significant <laughs> difference between the name Hoshea and Joshua? Both of them include that part about salvation. 
and and both of them call attention to the fact that it's the Lord who saves. So those are names, different names that basically mean the same thing. And um, you know, I have I, I don't mean this. I honestly don't mean this to be silly. But I've wondered. I've wondered this. Not so much with this case, but other cases. What, was this a situation where we call people William Bill interchangeably? Were there were there names like that that were used interchangeably? I don't know. I, I, I don't know because like you're saying, they mean the same thing and yet the Bible makes a point of the fact he changed his name. So so apparently it means something, but it, but it comes out in the same place. Okay. In verses 21 through 24, we read their exploration of the land. They went and spied, they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Lebo Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron. Well, well let's look at these places first of all. Let's look at these these places where they investigate. They begin, the text says, in the wilderness, verse 21, the wilderness of Zen. To Lebo Hamon. Now, the wilderness of Zen is a southern boundary of the land. It is mentioned in Numbers 34, verses 3 and 4 in that way. Numbers 34 will deal with the limits, geographical limits of the land. It is also mentioned in the area in Joshua 15, 1-3 as belonging to the tribe of Judah, allotted to the tribe of Judah. So that would have been a southernmost boundary of the land. And Lebo Hamath in Numbers 34, verses 7 and 8 is a northern Boundary, the northern boundary of the land. Now, this name will reappear quite frequently in the Old Testament. Most of the times, it will not be called Lebo Hamon, it will just be called Hamon. But at times of prosperity in Israel, it is emphasized that their northern boundary went all the way to Hamon. That is true in the days of Solomon, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 65. It is true in the days of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II is a very prosperous time in Israel, and their boundaries reached to Hamath. It is this time which is also referred to in Amos 6 and verse 14. So they are to search the land from its southern limits to its northern limits. They are to, re- they're to search and examine the land. There are a couple of places that are called out for special attention. Hebron is one of them and the valley of Eskol for another. 
Now, we might wonder if they are searching out the whole land, if they're examining it from its southernmost point to its northernmost point, why single out those places? Why single out those places? Why single out Hebron? The value of geography is not just being able to locate a point on a map. But often the value of geography is historical. To think about what has taken place at that particular... taken what, what has happened at that particular place. Hebron is the area where... God is God speaks to Abraham and says, Lift up your eyes to the north and to the south, to the east and the west. And all this land is going to, going to be given to you and your descendants. So this is a place associating with the promises of God to Abraham. Genesis 22, we perhaps reach the height of Abraham's career. This is in Genesis 22 where God says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering on one of those mountains I will show you. He, in faith, takes his son. He says, We will come back to you. And he he draws his knife to slay his son. And the Lord stops him. Abraham, Abraham, now I know you fear God. You've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That's the height of his career. It's not the end of his life. The next event recorded in Genesis 23 is Sarah dies and he purchases a burial place for her in a fall. Well, that's anticlimactic. But I don't know that it is. The fact that he buries Sarah in the land of Judah is a testimony to the fact He believes God will give us this land. But you know where he buries him? The cave of Machpelah, which is in Cariath Arba or Hebron. Here he is buried, or excuse me, Sarah is buried in 25, 7 through 11. He too will be buried here. And we find out in chapter 49 around verses 27 through 31 we find out in all those in those verses Abraham and Sarah are there Isaac and Rebekah are buried there and Jacob and Leah are buried there right now Leah is buried there and Jacob says bury me there so the point is all that was a statement in faith that God was going to give them the land that's why when Joseph dies, he says, don't leave my bones here, but carry them with you, because I know one day God will visit you and bring you up from here. The point, the very places that they are going to should have reminded them of the promises of God. Should have reminded them of the promises of God. Now, we can say the same for the valley of Eskol. Do you remember offhand who Eskol, who's difficult to spell, by the way, can you remember offhand where he's mentioned in the Bible? 
He's one of Abram's buddies. Okay, Abram's buddies. I think that is the New English version. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, his allies, I think. So it's when they come in and steal Lot. Yes, come and steal Lot. And Mamre and Eskol and I believe maybe Anner is his name. That they are allies with Abraham. They are allies with Abraham. And they apparently go with him to fight those four kings of Mesopotamia, Chedorlaomer. And what's the significance of that? Genesis 14 is the first battle in the Bible. First battle in the Bible. In this is four Mesopotamian kings defeat five kings of Canaan, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and three other cities. The Bible says when Abram hears it, he has 318 trained men in his house. Now, I would think myself pretty secure if I have 318 trained men who could serve as warriors in my house. If I had that many protecting me, I thought that was pretty good. But don't you suppose Chedorlaomer had more soldiers than that? I think he probably had a few more than 318. The first war in the Bible, we see that Abraham wins a battle against warriors who are stronger and more powerful than he is. Does that have any relevance to this passage? To go out and fight? against enemies who are stronger and more powerful than you are? Does that have any relevance to this passage? What I am saying is these place names call attention to the promises of God and to the victories that God has given His people. I wonder how many times do we make those same kind of mistakes? Do we lose the importance of this is the place where this great event happened. It should be obeyed. But instead, we we disobey in unbelief. But anyway, in verse in verse twenty three and twenty four, they find a single cluster of grapes, which is so large that a couple of them carry this cluster of grapes on poles, and there are pomegranates, and there are figs. Now, the name Eskol also means clusters. And you see a, a word play on that in verse 24. In, ver, in verse 24, they named this, the place was called the Valley of Eskol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. The, the words are the same in Hebrew. So one of them is transliterated, Eskol is transliterated, and, cl- and it's translated cluster in verse 24. So, this is the first part of the chapter. What is the report? And, and by the way, um, we're going to see later, there's not a whole lot of dispute between the spies over the condition of the land or the inhabitants of the land. That doesn't seem to be the point of dispute. The point of dispute is do we view this through unbelief or do we view this through faith? Which way do we look at this? In verse 25, 
When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They were asked to do this in verse 20. If it's possible, bring back some of the fruit of the land. They show them the fruit of the land. In verse 27, Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and moreover we saw the descendants of Anak there." Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and of the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea, by the side of the Jordan. Okay? They bring back part of the fruit of the land. They bring back some of the fruit of the land. They bring back this cluster of grapes. They bring back pomegranates and figs mentioned in verse 23. But... Now, in verse 27, well, they acknowledge the land is a good land. It seems like later they contradict that. The land is a good land, but they said, the land where you sent us, where you sent us. When I was first in college, in the 80s, preachers were always preaching against humanism. I'm not mocking that because you don't ever hear the word now. But the idea is still there. And it was basically looking at life simply from man's perspective with no higher power, with no greater meaning than man himself. And and. Man is the measure of all things was one of the themes of humanism. You may not hear that word much, but that idea is still present. And it was present in 1400 B.C. The spies, the bad spies, the wicked spies, never make reference to God or the promises of God. They do not make reference to God, the promises of God. God described the land in verse 2 as the land which I am giving you. They describe the land as the land where you sent us in verse 27. In verse 32, they're going to describe the land again. And they're going to say in verse 32, the land through which we have gone. It's the land through which we've gone. It's the land of where you've sent us. It's not the land the Lord is giving us. Because if they call attention to the promises of God, they are undermining what they are trying to accomplish. Which is, we've got to call this mission off. It was meant to build up trust, as we said earlier to Katrina. It was meant to build up trust, but you see it is they are trying to undermine it. Even after they say... It is a good land. Look at the first word of verse 28. Nevertheless, this Hebrew word is used 44 times in the Old Testament and it is a strong contrast. It's a good land. Yeah, we'll grant that. Nevertheless, 
We're not able. We are not able to take it. They were asked to report about the people. They were asked to report about the cities. Are the people in the land strong? Are the people in the land weak? Are the cities fortified or are they open camps? In both cases, they bring back bad news from their perspective. Their cities are fortified. Their cities are well fortified. And the people who dwell in the land are strong. And he mentions the names of many of these nations and peoples in verse 29. Now, it's interesting that the names of those nations and peoples are often mentioned in the Bible right after the Lord promises, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, and it is the land of the Hittites. It's the land of the Canaanites. It is the land of the Jebusites. You see that in Exodus 3, verse 8. Uh, Exodus 3, verse 17. Exodus 13, verse 5. That God will say, I'm giving you the land, and then He will mention these inhabitants of the land. God says, I'm going to give you the land in spite of whoever dwells there. The spies see these nations in the land, and to them it is a deterrent. We cannot go there. We cannot go there. We cannot take it. And in verse 30, Caleb quieted the people. We should by all means go up and take possession, for we shall surely overcome it. Now, I told you we were going to invoke Deuteronomy 1. I don't know if this happened at this precise point. Though this would be a very good point for it. But Moses also gives his appeal to take the land. This is Deuteronomy 1. Deuteronomy 1 verses 29 through 31. Moses said, Then I said, Do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. Moses at some point adds his words of faith. Don't fear them. Don't be shocked by them. God is going before you. God is fighting for you. Just like He's carried us in the wilderness like a man carries his son. He may have added His words here in verse 13, verse 30. He may have added them in 17 verses, or excuse me, 14 verses 7 through 9 after Joshua speaks. But somewhere He adds that. Well, the spies. No, they can't let this go. Verse 31. The men who gone up with them said, We are not able. Caleb said, We are able. We can overcome it. They contradict this. We are not able. For the people that go up are too strong for us. Now, let me stop you right there. Verse 31. Just look at verse 31. Are those words true? You say yes, John. Mary as well. Want to elaborate or? Well, in Deuteronomy, God admits they were. Yeah, they're stronger than we. 
from the perspective these spies are looking at it, they're right. We're not able. We're not able to fight against them, and they are too strong for us. Now John referred to Deuteronomy. Listen to how these nations are described in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. He names off the nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, etc. And he describes them as seven nations greater and stronger than you. That's Deuteronomy 7, in verse 1. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. The same kind of description is given... In Deuteronomy chapter um, 9, verses 1 through 3. We want to invoke that in just a second. Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 3. But they say, we are not able and they are too strong for us. And from the perspective from which they speak, they're right. But they're not looking at it the right way. They are, the enemy is too strong for them, but it's not too strong for God. Not too strong for God. In verse 32, they gave a bad report of the land. Saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Does that sound to you like a contradiction of verse 27? Sure does to me. Verse 27, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a bad land that devours its inhabitants. Mary? And all the men are giants. They're exaggerating. To okay. <laughs> well, I think there are giants. through fear, through fear, they are seeing they're much bigger than we are. You know, and, and, and yes, you're right. Not all of them are, but if we're going to fight the battle, you think about the strongest and the, and the most powerful, and not the weakest. But you're right about that. I want to give you a passage though to write down beside of this. Ezekiel 36 is an address. Ezekiel 36 is an address to the mountains of Israel. You'll see the mountains addressed specifically in verse 8 of Ezekiel 36. But the verse I really wanted to stress is Ezekiel 36, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord God... Now this is 600... B.C. 800 years after this. Because they say to you, you are a devourer of men and have bereaved your nation of children, therefore you will no longer devour men and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord. You know what that's saying? That's saying in a sense, in Israel's history, they did devour their inhabitants. Now, am I agreeing with these unfaithful spies? No. I'm saying because Israel manifests the same unbelief that the two ten wicked spies do, to some degree, this is Israel's history. Their land does devour them because of their unbelief 
and disobedience. It's not that this way it should have been. It is the way that it was because of their unbelief. Now, Mary mentioned the size of the people. All the people. It is an exaggeration. All the people we saw in it were men of great size. They, uh, there also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak were there. Uh, part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in their sight. Okay? Let's look at several things here. I've got a feeling... Even though this is a very picky question, because of this sticks out in our mind. The Nephilim, that Hebrew word used one other time in the Bible. Do you know where? Where, Craig? Genesis 6. Genesis 6 and verse 4. It talks about the men were Nephilim uh, in the days that led to the flood. And it's the only use here. And some newer translations, Nephilim basically, the word Nephal in Hebrew basically has the idea of twofold. Twofold. Um, where do we get the translate? Some of the versions, like the King James, had the word giants here. We get the word giants from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where they translated it, the, the giants. A lot of your newer versions are simply having Nephilim. They leave the word, it's transliterated, it's not translated. And that's the way it's done here in Numbers 13, verse 33. Is that translation giants far off? Maybe not. Because here you see it's people of great size that are intimidating Israel that we can't take the land. They're thinking we, we can't. We're just not able to take the land. So they mention the Nephilim and they mention the descendants of Anak. Now, these, these are mentioned in verse 22, verse 28, and verse 33. Now, we see their name appear more often in the Old Testament. Listen to Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 3. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire and He will destroy them and will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken before you. Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Here Moses is talking about this great and mighty people and people are saying, who can stand before them? But God is a consuming fire. Is that a discouraging fact or an encouraging fact? Here is, yes, yes, it's both. Here it's encouraging. If you've got enemies who are greater and mightier than you are and you're trusting Him, the fact God is a consuming fire and I didn't check this up, but I'm pretty sure the word consuming here 
is the same word devour in Numbers 13 verse 33. In fact, God's a consuming fire is an encouragement. He is a consuming fire. He's able to defeat your foes. He is able to bring them down. Now, the sons of Anak. Do you know? Do you know when um, when Caleb conquers the land? Or excuse me, when, when, when Joshua's the people conquered the land, the Bible emphasizes that they defeated the Anakim. These people are still around when they conquer the land and they defeat them. They defeat them because God is bigger than they are. And I'll tell you a couple of other passages to work in uh, to, to try to get a view of these people. Look at it, 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 and we won't look at them extensively today, but God says in Deuteronomy 10, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 2, verses 10 through 12, Deuteronomy 2, verses 20 through 23, that it was that, that the Ammonites and the Moabites, uh, that they defeated a people that were as big and tall as the Anakim when God gave them their land. So can't God do that for you? Can't God do that for you? I love Amos 2.9 where it's talking about all God did for the people of Israel. And Amos 2.9 uh, and I want to, to get exactly how it's worded. Um, Amos 2 verse 9 I destroyed the Amorite before you though his height was like the height of cedars and he was as strong as the oaks I destroyed his fruit above and his root below the enemy was bigger than they were and stronger than they were it takes a lot of faith to trust God to fight an enemy stronger and mightier than you are that he will give you victory. It takes a lot of faith in God. And after the battle is won, and after victory is a fact, it takes a lot of humility to recognize it wasn't from you, but it was from him. It wasn't because the people didn't need to go on a speaking tour in the days of Joshua, how I defeated the Anakim. No. It was how God defeated the Anakim. Humility is easier to remember before the battle. Fear is a greater temptation before the battle. Don't forget those feelings of fear after the battle is won and victory is accomplished. This is... A national David versus Goliath. This is David versus Goliath on a national scale. And we all have David versus Goliath situations in our lives. Maybe ours is not quite as dramatic as David's nor as Israel's here, but we all have those situations. Will we trust him? And fight the battle.
trusting in Him. And even if we temporarily lose, we've won. Something a person stated that has stuck with me. I would rather fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to temporarily succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. We believe that God is the Alpha and Omega. He's the Lord of history who began it all and who will bring it all to an appropriate conclusion. Therefore, following Him will work. To that I say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, I want to say something else. Grasshoppers. Grasshopper, this word for grasshoppers is five times the Old Testament. One of them is Leviticus 11.22. Some have described grasshoppers as the smallest edible animal in Israel. Now, does this play a part in this description? They're going to eat us like we were the smallest prey. They're going to eat us like we were grasshoppers. We're little grasshoppers. But another time this word is used is Isaiah 40, verse 22. In Isaiah 40, verse 22, the Bible talks about God who sits above the circle of the earth and all its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before Him. It may be true that the people of Israel are grasshoppers compared to the people of Anak. But the problem is not Israel's self-esteem. The problem is their lack of faith in God. Because to their God, all these enemies are like grasshoppers. Again, may God help us to believe when we find situations ultimately as helpless looking. I intended, as I always do almost, to get further. But we did not. Let's make a concerted effort to finish at least 14 on next um, next uh, on Wednesday. Because I don't want to have to extend this class to infinity. Uh, so, But thank you for your attention. God bless.